0: So much, thank you so much. Why do you people look so familiar? <laughs> it's so good to see you. So good to see you. Um, I have to tell you, and this is—I'm not just manipulating uh, facts here to bring you this truth, but it really is true. A couple of weeks ago, um, my family, extended family, there were many of us like over 20 of us that were actually vacationing in Hawaii, Kauai. And um, as I am, I took a book with me and I'm, as I'm sitting there and I'm reading through this book, I'm thinking, oh, all through these chapters, I'm thinking the church just needs to hear this information. Um, there's so much richness in this. Well, as I'm doing that, I'm sitting on the couch and I know you're going to get jealous. I'm sitting looking over the seashore; it's crashing against the, the lava rocks, and it's very beautiful. And all the kids are out playing at the pool or whatever. And um, as I'm doing that, my phone goes, bzzzt, and I picked it up, and it's Pastor Ben. And uh, he, at that time, was offering an invitation to come and speak with you today. And I've I got the book in one hand, and I got my cell phone in the other, going. Oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> this is going to work. So anyway, um, that, that really, that's the truth. And so I went ahead. I was very close to finishing the book, and I went ahead and, and finished it. Let me uh, just focus right in and, and get right to my introduction, because the, bo- the book was recently published, and it was entitled Alienated America. What an interesting title, Alienated America published by Timothy Carney, who was an evangelical Christian, the book established through reliable studies uh, by such organizations as the Pew Research, the American Enterprise Institute, and the Public Religion Research Institute, and several others, that we are experiencing a crisis of social isolation in our country today. It's been going on for some time. In the very first chapter of his book, Carney said, alienation, or the sense of separation between people and communities, um, alienation is the disease of the working class of America today. Its most important accompaniment is family collapse. Strong families, he said, are the necessary condition of the good life of common or economic mobility and of the American dream. Let me give you another quote from him. He said, the story of rising suicides and crumbling families and the story of growing inequality and falling economic mobility is properly understood as the story of the dissolution of a civil society. Why do so many people believe the American dream is dead? He said, I think the answer is this, because strong communities have, been, have crumbled, and much of America has been left abandoned. Without the web of human connections and institutions that make the good life possible, more of America is a wasteland of alienation, and less of America is the village. And you understand what he means by village? Now, interesting, while Carney believes the erosion of society is the fundamental problem in our country today, he said, with conviction, the strongest influence that glues Americans together and creates that strong sense of community is the church, the church, He said, strong religious communities are the best example of a reinvigorated civil society that brings to the working class the modeling, the support structure, and the sense of purpose that only local human-level community can bring. He said, there's something about the blend of America and the religion that creates the best environment uh, for the mutual flourishing of shared norms and individual liberty." You can see why I was so captured by this book. Because this book establishes the undeniable truth that the church is the core institution of our society. See why so many churches ought to have this message? Because it's so encouraging to us. Allow me one last quote, and then I'm going to make my point, and we'll get to our scripture. Carney said, If we recall that church is the largest and most important institution of civil society and it is the wellspring uh, from which most of the rest of society comes then the listen retreat of churches in america is the erosion of civil society in america the retreat the erosion of civil society in America means the collapse of community. The collapse of community is the collapse of family and the, and the death of the American dream. In this alienating wasteland, he said, we get increased inequality, decreased mobility, and faded hope. And then we get even more broken families, even less church-going, and more depths of despair. Just a few days ago, I was reading through the Wall Street Journal... And I came across an interesting article that gave some statistics that actually confirm Carney's statement about the the retreat of churches in America. This is 2019, of course, 19 years ago. In the year 2000, there were 41% of the American population who said that they went to church at least once a week. Today, that number is 29% decreased substantially. There has been a steady long-term decline in church de- de- attendance that's been go- going on for nigh on 20 years. Uh, back in 19 years ago in the year 2000, 14% of people said they had never been to church. Today, that number is 26%. So you see there are, uh, there's other confirmation that the church over the course of the past couple of decades has been retreating Now the point that I want to make in this introduction comes in the form of a question. If social unity and strength in America is crumbling, if communities are coming apart at the the seams with greater individual alienation, and on the other hand, if church is the largest, most important, and most influential institution in civil society, What then does God require of us? I'm not speaking to just this church. I'm saying of all of us, of all evangelical Christendom in America today. What does God require of us? There is a precedent in the Bible where God has responded to this kind of situation. Would you please turn with me, if you haven't already, to the Old Testament book of Micah, chapter 6. Micah, chapter 6. You're not quite sure where that is. He's one of the uh, Old Testament minor prophets. The first you have are the major prophets, right? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. And then you're going to go Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. So you're going to find him right up uh, in the front end of the minor prophets there. I'll wait till you get there because I'm... I'm going to introduce kind of a proposition statement from as we introduce our scripture this morning. All right. The overall theme of Micah's prophecy, and this is stunning, is the necessary product of saving faith that which we experience today in our salvation is two things. It's practical holiness, right? Sanctification. But secondly, social reform. It's a, that's what comes out of Micah. Let me say that again. The overall theme of Micah is the necessary product of saving faith is practical holiness and social reform. And both of these things are based upon the righteousness and the sovereignty of our great majestic God. I'm so glad that he sent Micah to give us this message. In his day, in Micah's day, social order had disintegrated in Israel. There was widespread rebellion against the rule of God. This is all in chapters 1 through 5, leading up to chapter 6, where we begin this morning. But there was this widespread rebellion against God and his ways. People were worshiping false gods. There was rampant social crime like coveting, fraud, rejection of what was good, and the pursuit of all kinds of evil like bloodshed and bribery, selling religion for personal gain, and false teaching in the name of God. Does any of this sound familiar to you? We experience so many of those kinds of things even today, which makes Micah very relevant to us and very practical. You see, in response to those sins that were tearing apart the fabric of Israelite life, God sent Micah with an important word of correction, principles that would restore order and civility in their society. And these same principles serve as guides for us today as to how we, the people of God, should respond under similar circumstances. The first thing that... that God did through this prophet, was to establish his righteous authority to give counsel to his people. And that's in verses 1 through 5. Would you look with me there, please, in chapter 6, um, verse 1? Hear now what the Lord is saying. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Listen, you mountains, to the indictments of the Lord and you, and you enduring foundations of the earth because the Lord has a case against his people. Even with Israel, he will dispute. Now we hear from God directly. Look what he says. My people, what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? Answer me. Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and ransomed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember now what Balak, the king of Moab, counseled and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him from Shittim to Gelgal in order that you might know the righteous acts of the Lord. God asks, What have I done to deserve such treatment by My people that I've done so much for. I saved you from hundreds of years of Egyptian slavery. I gave you faithful leaders. I even protected and blessed you when other people were trying to destroy you. That's how much I love you. That's how much I care for you. At that that point, Micah, emotionally overcome by God's righteousness and his love for his people, just bows down. The word is shakah in the, in the original and it means to fall on your knees and fall on your face because you're overwhelmed with respect and awe for the majesty of God and Micah bows down and he asks God how how do we make things right how can I bring you adequate worship on behalf of your people look at verse 6 with what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high Shall I come to him with burnt offerings? He's he's suggesting things that might work. How about burnt offerings with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? See how passionate his emotional state is when he says these things. And if we could just uh, recapture that. In other words, he's saying, anything you want, Lord, I'm willing to bring to you in order to make things right. And it's right here, right here, that God gives the remedy for that social disintegration. And he gives a recipe for social reconstruction. Principles that will bring about a strong, vibrant, unified, faithful people. Look at verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Beautiful words, are they not? I'm sure that if you've been a Christian very long, you've heard them before. But in the context of what is happening here in in Micah's day, and also ours. Well, there it is. This is what the church should do in response to the social decay that's going on around us. You know, it's true that we can't control the actions of others, but we can control our own, can't we? Number one, do justice. In other words, concentrate on doing what's right and fair according to the word of God. Stay true and stay faithful to the trust that you have in God. Justice, along with uh, two other attributes, uh, characteristics, uh, which would be holiness and righteousness, uh, completes a threefold biblical revelation of God's absolute purity. So you might say purity is the same thing as God's holiness, righteousness, and justice. Purity of God. As God acts in perfect conformity to his own purity, he expects out of, the, out of giving us uh, an ability to follow that, he expects us then to conform to that purity as well, as much as possible. He is completely fair in his administration of social order, and he expects the same from us. And so we adopt as our standard his laws, his precepts, and we treat others fairly. Why? Because that's what God himself does. Do justice. And yet, you know, we look around us. We all know that so many things in society are just not right, not fair, not just. We hear, we see it every day, everywhere. Sometimes crime does pay. Sometimes people who do unjust things do get ahead. But you know, it's then that we need to go back to God's word and trust him and hear him say this. It was what the psalmist said in Psalm 73 when he went into the sanctuary of God and he perceived the end of the wicked. He saw that they would ultimately be destroyed. So justice isn't evaluated on a short-term basis. Within this life, it will often be incomplete and imperfect, but that doesn't stop us from practicing fairness as a way of life. The prophet Amos said in chapter 5, and verse 14, seek good, not evil, that you may live and thus, may the Lord God of hosts be with you. Hate evil, love good, and establish justice in the gate. Let the justice roll down for like the waters and the righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So we work to be selfless, and we work to be fair in all things, no matter what's going on in the world around us. There's very little that you and I can do to control that. But we can control, as Christians, saved by the blood of Christ, to be following the admonition of God in these precious words. Do justice. Secondly, love kindness. Love kindness. This is that state of being that involves the attributes of affection, sympathy, friendship, friendliness, patience, pleasantness, and gentleness. It's right, revealed by what a person speaks and what a person does. It's also something that people rarely ever forget when it's expressed toward them. The Bible is filled with expressions of this kind of kindness. If you'll remember back in the Old Testament, and some of you, the students who have been learning through the Old Testament some of these stories, you remember Rahab, she requested fine kindness from Israel... For the protection of the two spies that had come into her home in Joshua 2. Before he attacked Amalek, the king Saul asked the Kenites to leave the territory, not wanting to kill them because of the kindness they had shown to Israel when they came out of Egypt. David commended the the men of Jabesh Gilead for their kindness that they had shown when they gave king Saul uh, a decent burial after he was killed in battle in 2 Samuel 2. David also extended kindness to Jonathan's son by granting him the right to eat at the king's table. Above all, however, we acknowledge this, that the greatest act of kindness we will ever know is God's provision of salvation for sinners at the cross of Christ. Would you agree with that? Paul wrote to Titus, it's in chapter 3, I wish we had all day. If you'd like to stay, I'll be happy to do this with you. (laughs) But in Titus chapter 3, listen to the words in verse 5. When the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his, what's the next word? Mercy. Mercy, but according to his mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us, how richly, through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that being justified, declared not guilty by his grace, we might be made heirs according to that great hope of eternal life. Hope is the confident expectation that these promises of God will come to pass. What an incredible passage that is. You can see why it would be a wonderful thing to spend some time here. But our point is that because of God's immense kindness toward us in giving us life and giving us physical blessings, that we are to show kindness in return for God's kindness toward us. And so we do justice and we love kindness. Third, walk humbly with your God, scripture tells us. And to walk humbly with your God. Two things, actually there's three, we walk with, we walk meaning your, your general habits of life as a commitment um, of your life's principle. Everything you do is, is governed and directed by, by this and it becomes your walk. And so um, unlike all of the alienation that we are experiencing in the world today, Man was never designed to walk alone. Life is just too demanding and too hopeless for that. I really believe the root cause of all of the tragic, violent acts that we are seeing in our modern, advanced society today is due to people drowning in the despair of loneliness that leads to desperate acts expressing the depth of the hopeless existence, the result of walking alone, independent from God and from others, Alienation. alienation in its worst moment. You know, all the way back in Genesis 3, After God created man and woman and brought them together in marriage, that oldest social institution in the world, everything was as it should be. God and man walked together. What soon followed, however, was a fracturing of that harmony. In the original sin of rebellion and disobedience, the ultimate expression of man's independence from God, self-alienation, you might say, Man could no longer walk guiltless with him. And so what did man do? Man hid from God. Genesis 3.8 tells us, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. You can just picture the, the perfect serenity that's going on right here. And the man and his wife, here's where it changes, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And it was then that they heard from God the most devastating words that could enter, ever enter the ear of man. Where are you? You think God knew where they were? Yeah, he knew. He asked that question so that they would know the degree of their separation, their alienation, not only from God, but also from the perfect world that he had made for them and for us. In a single act of defiance, everything changed. This brings us to our our third point. We We walk with God, and we walk with God in humility. We walk humbly with our God. The word root here is, is a sana, and, and it's the only place in the Bible where it is used in this particular form. It means to submit to God as you walk with him. What a beautiful picture this is of our relationship with our creator. When we walk with him and for him, he is pleased then to open up his plan Uh, in our life that provides the order and the tranquility and the peace that we need so badly. This is the wonderful part about a a good God as well as a great God. This is the ultimate solution to an alienated world. When you humbly walk with God, you are never alone. You always have help. He is there as our eternal protector, provider, guide and companion. When you walk humbly with God, you always have someone to talk to, talk with, someone to relate to, and someone to seek guidance and gain strength from. It's what he requires of us, but I'm happy to have it, aren't you? But it's what he requires in order to have a good and tranquil life. Now, friends, with this, what we have here is a revelation, a revealing of the North American, if you will. I'm speaking of our, our country in relationship to what Carney addressed. We have a, a revealing of the evangelicals, uh, evangelical church's present opportunity in the world. And this is the encouragement that comes from Scripture to us. As we do these things individually... And then as we do them individually, (laughs) the synergistic power where one and one equals three or four comes together collectively as a church, and we become the light. We become the life. We become the hope of all the sin and all the corruption that surrounds us. Do you believe that this morning? I hope you do because you, we all... Where the word of God is being preached in churches here this morning all across this country. This is, this is what we must believe because it's what God requires of us. And if God requires it of us and we are pleased to give it to him, then it works just may not work immediately. Maybe will not work in five minutes from now, but we give it time. And we know that church, as the primary social institution of this country, if we do these things one-on-one, we come together in that strong community, we present these things, light life, life, and hope to the world around us, all the sin around us. Now, some may choose not to look at it or t- take it or accept it, but that's their choice. But you see, the Scripture is, what does the Lord require of you. It's not optional for us. And besides, it's good for us. God always has his glory in mind and our good when he gives us these kinds of requirements. It says, do this and you will have fulfilled my plan for you. If, as Carney said, the church is the strongest influence in society, and I truly believe that because I see the community here that he wrote chapters about. I don't see it a lot in the world outside the church because I I do. I agree. I see it crumbling. Uh, I see bowling alleys closed. I see uh, nobody's going to bridge clubs anymore. What's bridge? I know it's a card game. Um, I see these things. You know, we have a roller skating rink uh, in, our ch- in our town that closed. Why? No business, no community there. Thank God he took a hold of that thing and, and a church bought it. Yes, that's what we're talking about. That's a lot more community than roller skating, isn't it? And there's a whole movement afoot in Ukiah. They're saying, hey, um, let's save our bowling alley. I say, no, let a church buy it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think it's, I don't know, whatever. It can be done. But you see what I'm saying. And if the church is the strongest influence in society, then let's take full advantage of this. If the church is the strongest influence in society, then let's unify ourselves under these instructions and, and take them seriously and do them and fulfill our mandate from God and let's meet the need of the world around us. Why? By proje- how? By projecting a beacon of hope to those with eyes to see and with ears to hear and with a heart open to the healing power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's the power of the church in the world today. I do not accept for a moment, and I pray you do not do this either, that, that, that we would be a part of anything that would retreat from our holy calling and righteous calling and powerful calling from God to be the church that he wants us to be. And in this, I find great encouragement. I, I, I um, was kind of sorry when I finished the book. <laughs> I was on the last chapter when Pastor Ben texted me, and I thought, oh my goodness, This is what the church needs to hear today. Not that there's any condemnation in this, but there's great encouragement in this. Because like you, each one of you, my greatest desire is to glorify God with my life. And when we come together to do that uh, in corporate form like we are right now, what a pleasure it is to say, yeah, I'll do that. And to see that synergism, that one plus one equals far more than two. And to see that begin to work in the world over time, maybe a little time, maybe a medium amount of time, maybe a long time, I don't know. But the idea is that it glorifies God when the church becomes what he wants it to be or is what it wants to be. And as Paul said, I have no complaint with you, but do still more to the Thessalonian church. That will keep us in the embrace, the solid, loving, firm, embrace of God's grace that gives us the companionship that we were designed for it will provide it will prove that we are doing our part then to help heal a broken society moreover in this we will discover the joy that the true joy which is contentment multiplied Um, that accompanies obedience no matter what happens in the world around us. We can be the light, we can be the life, we can be the hope of those around us. Not taking anything away from Jesus, because he's the one that truly gives us life, doesn't he? He is the one that happened at the cross a long time ago, and behind that, um, there was the formation of the church in Acts chapter 2, and from that point on, uh, we find these instructions that are relevant to us, not just in the New Testament, but also these principles that come out from the Old Testament, So my prayer this morning and and, uh, my, I guess, admonition, my encouragement is that God would bless us, you and me, as we honor him by doing justice, by loving kindness, and by walking how? Humbly with our God. That's my prayer this morning and the teaching from the Word of God. As the worship team comes, let's pray. God, I want to thank you for the opportunity to share these truths which do come from your Word. And we know that they're timeless. It doesn't matter which testament they're in. The principles come to us from thousands of years ago and even from uh, more recent times in the New Testament. But we don't take these things lightly. We thank you that you are the God, despite the condition of the world around us, who blesses us for blessing your holy name. And we pray this morning, God, that each one of us would uh, take these simple but profound principles to heart, take them deeply, put them into practice in our lives, that we might become the kind of people that please you. In all respects, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.